Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how are your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, 
Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I have the unenvious task of preaching about suffering. If you were to ask me what are the two topics I find most challenging to preach about, one is tithing and the other is suffering. Um, One thing that came to mind as I was preparing for this message is suffering doesn't discriminate. And so whether you're young or you're old, it certainly is a relevant topic. It's a relevant issue. It, and this may not be the best way to describe it, but perhaps the, the greatest catalyst for unbelief. I confess on a light note that I prayed for the suffering of Niners fans last night, but God did not answer my prayers. And um, I felt that only Eagles fans suffer in this world, but I know that not to be the case. Um, But in all seriousness, suffering comes in many forms. For many of us, if not all of us, what immediately comes to mind is death or something leading to death. But I don't think the Bible limits it to that. And I think that's intentional. And the Bible's not going to scoff at those whose suffering is on the lesser end. It can be financial, it can be relational. It can be emotional, psychological, spiritual, physical. It may not even be your particular suffering. To watch someone suffer is tough. And one piece of advice I've been told, and it's challenging for a pastor when you see someone who is enduring such challenges, is you want to talk so much. You want to say this and that, quote this verse and that verse. But sometimes you just got to hug. And there aren't always going to be answers. And that may not seem the most biblical, seemingly the most biblical response or statement to make. But we're not going to get all the answers to all of our questions. But I do believe the one thing that this passage in particular, there's so much in here, we're just gonna focus on the suffering aspect of this passage. There's so much that can be said, but in the end, what John desires for you to walk away with is Christ. And he makes that very explicit. Unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John actually takes a moment at the very end of his gospel in verse 31 of chapter 20. And he says, this is the reason why I wrote this. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote that whole book, the whole gospel. It's really simple. And so it's important to have that in mind as we approach John 9 and to understand the idea of, in this specific story, the idea of blindness, why, what, how, 
What is God doing? What is he thinking? Because I know personally I would have a different opinion as to how to deal with this. But I'm not God. And thankfully I'm not. Thankfully none of us are. Uh, and for, for us who are believers and have placed our faith in Christ, this is an opportunity to look at this that we can't necessarily firmly grasp and yet come out with stronger faith and come out with greater conviction and comfort that Jesus is the Christ in the, earlier, in the earlier chapter, John chapter 8, verse 51, Jesus makes a statement that sounds really ridiculous. He says that those who keep his words will never see death. Now, what he doesn't mean, clearly, you know I'm going to say this, he doesn't mean you're not going to physically die. Because those people, many millions of people who have placed their faith in Christ with a sincere conviction, obeying him and following him, they have died and they have moved on. And they are with the Lord. And for us, if Christ should not come before we see death, we will see death, the end of our physical lives, whether it's a natural death or whatever it may be. And though we have followed him faithfully, we will to use my words, not his words, we will see death. But that's not what Jesus means, is it? So he must mean something else. In John 11, he says that those who believe in him will never die. My grandfather, I had the, the blessing of seeing him right before he passed. He was 99. And if you were to ask me, at least in my circle circles of life, who was the most faithful in his or her faith, I would have said him. And yet, he's with the Lord. So clearly, Jesus is not meaning to say, you will live physically, immortally, live forever. That's not what he means. So there's something more, something different, but something greater. And that's what he wants to point us to. But it's not simply to say that we ignore our suffering or to say it's not a big deal. I could not imagine. I'm not here to preach myself. I, as my parents would say, I have not suffered. Parents always love to tell me that. You have not suffered. I mean, frankly, and I don't mean this in any lightness, maybe the most I've suffered is close friend of mine died of leukemia in his 20s. That wasn't my body. I watched as he died. But is that suffering? So I'm not here to preach myself, and even if I were to have the greatest stories, shouldn't do it. It's not what God would want you to hear today. But God will want you to either know of for the first time, or be reminded of who he is. And he offers himself wherever you may be. So even some of you who are young, suffering's coming. And God gives us a great opportunity to cling to him 
so that when that day comes, when the storms come, the waters rise, your house will still stand. That when the temptations of the world and, and the challenges scorch upon your life, you will produce fruit, hundredfold even. So let's dig in. We're just going to dig in for a little bit, and I admit this is one of those messages where I kind of springboard into the rest of Scripture. Um, and it was a really challenging week uh, because suffering is something I think you could literally preach every Sunday and you'll never get to the end of it. Uh, but we will just focus on a few topics and a few important, I think, points. Verse 1, John tells us that Jesus is walking by and he sees this blind man. And at first glance, it seems like just descriptive. Of course, he sees a blind man. Well, actually, I, as I thought about it, I don't know what that blind man looked like. I guess if he was standing there with a cane, I would assume he was blind, but I don't know that. He could have simply been sitting there with his eyes closed. What would that tell me? That he was sleeping? That he was blind? I don't know. Now, John includes that word seeing, or he says, Jesus saw this blind man, but I don't think it's simply to be descriptive, but it's to say that the one who does see and the one who can give sight sees this man who does not see and does not have sight. And that resonates clearly with the gospel. That the good news of Jesus is in our present condition, we don't see the truth. We don't understand the truth. We don't know where God is, who he is, what he offers. We're completely lost. So he comes to us because everything is so clear. It's from him. It's about him. So here's Jesus who sees him. And the disciples then bring up this question, why? When Jesus looks at us today, if you are in suffering, I believe the first point this passage wants us to know is that God knows your challenges. He knows your pain. I'm not going to tell you that Jesus has experienced your financial worries or that he's lost children. He didn't have children. So sure, we could say he doesn't know. But as a God who has died on the cross and bore our sin, he knows your pain. And as the one who's given himself to you, for you, he bears that pain with you. He walks with you. He is not ignorant of what we are going through. So even if we are to, and you totally should, lay everything before God in prayer, God already knows. Scripture tells us that he even knows far more deeply and accurately than we know of ourselves. That even in Romans, we're told that even if we're at that point where we're groaning, we don't even have words to describe the pain. God says, I know that pain. So Jesus sees us. He sees our challenges. He sees our suffering. He sees what we're going through. 
There's an Old Testament book, Job, if you've ever had the opportunity, I certainly recommend for you to read it. It is the place to go to regarding suffering. It's a challenging read. It's not just a longer book, but it won't necessarily give you the answers that you are looking for, that you want. Not even the answers that you think you really need. We want to know why, like the disciples, but Job doesn't necessarily go into that. And either God totally misses the mark or God kind of misunderstands my question or my situation, or maybe he knows something that I don't. Maybe he gives what I don't think or know I need, but I really do. And in Job chapter one and two, if you're not familiar with the story, it begins with Satan who goes into the presence of God and he asks him one simple question. He says, God, does Job love you for nothing? And that's a great question to ask yourself. What are the things that are almost non-negotiable in your life? Do we love God for nothing? Or do we love unconditionally because we have been loved unconditionally? Now, God knows Job's heart. He knows Job and he says, yeah, you can do whatever you want to him. In fact, he allows Job to suffer everything except death. His body is stricken, his family is taken, his wealth, his prosperity, even his wife looks him straight in the face and says, curse God and die. Why do you still cling to this God in the midst of all your suffering? And it's, it's a tough point to swallow because what Job 1 and 2 is telling us is that God permits our suffering. That he, somehow in his sovereignty, he doesn't just simply stand there and watch. He doesn't just simply sit back and say, I've got nothing to do with that, or let's see what happens. Now again, that may sound really offensive, almost discouraging. But somehow the Bible is going to want us and I think it does do a good job in presenting this message to uphold on the one hand, the goodness and the sovereignty, the faithfulness and the compassion, the love of God. But at the same time, he will allow us to endure extremely difficult circumstances. And the way I look at it is, if I look at his permission of my suffering, of any suffering, as a mistake, then he couldn't possibly be good. Then he couldn't possibly be worship-worthy. He's not God. So there's something either I cannot fully comprehend, something that I'm missing that I'm just not capable of understanding completely, and yet he's still able to do both. Be this and do this. And that's what we see in Job chapter one and two. In verse two of John chapter nine, where we get this sense of suffering is not for nothing. And that's something I think a lot of us could possibly be tempted to feel if not we've already thought or felt in our hearts when we're in the midst of suffering. What is this for? It couldn't possibly be for any purpose or any good. It's just making my life miserable. In fact, it's an obstacle that's preventing me from growing and really loving God. 
So again, if God is sovereign and he is good and he is allowing it, but there's no meaning behind it or in it, then God, you're making a mistake. You got to remove it. I won't fault you for it, but let's just get rid of it. Now, again, I'm not saying don't pray for removal of suffering. But verse 2, Jesus is telling us that suffering is not for nothing and it is never wasted. It's always purposeful. In verse 2, the disciples ask a question, which a lot of us would ask, and I think it's an okay question to ask, why? Where did this come from? What was the cause of this blindness in this man? And later the Pharisees are going to work off that question as well. But Jesus kind of changes the question. And I thought about that. If I was the one being blind, I'm sure that blind man has asked that, asked that question many a time. Why is this happening to me? God, I know you're good, et cetera, et cetera. But why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? Why have you allowed this to happen for me to endure this, for it to fill my life? What's going on? I know that for me, and I can't speak for you, but I think this is one of the possibilities that if God were to tell me why, what then? If I am insisting and wanting this answer, God says, well, it's because of this. Let's say it's because of a particular incident, or let's say it is because of a specific sin that you committed. What is my next step? In all likelihood, I know my selfishness and my self-centeredness is going to say, well, God, I think you made a mistake. It's kind of like calling God into my office and God, this doesn't look right on the ledger. What happened here? Then he told me that, well, you need to correct that. That would have been my instant. But God doesn't go that route. And there's certainly reasons for everything and a lot more detail than God is going to disclose. And the disciples ask why. Again, it's a natural question. They even ask, is it the parents' fault that this person is blind? Now, many years later in rabbinical commentaries, they're actually going to make the point that infants who, unborn, unborn children, if their mothers have worshipped at a pagan temple, worshipping idols, that unborn child has worshipped an idol. Now, that kind of thought, it hasn't been written yet, in Jesus' day, but it's there. In fact, later we find out this person didn't become blind. This person was blind from birth. So we kind of get caught up in all these questions that don't really quite get us moving forward. Because what we do want and what God wants is for us to endure it. And sure, one of the possibilities is, and maybe you've experienced and some of you have not, is that God could simply remove it. But Jesus seems to have something more deeper in mind. Again, there is purpose behind it. And God wants for us to know that he can use suffering for his own purposes. And John 9 is not the first place we see this. One of the earlier places is in the story of Joseph. And it's a commonly rehearsed verse, Genesis 50 verse 20, where at the very end of Joseph's life, 
he's there with his brothers and his father has passed away. And his brothers realize, wow, our brother has a lot of power and the tables have turned and he's going to enact revenge on us. And so they try to lie and weasel their way out of it. And he looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. And amazingly, God can. Now, I get that I get that, that doesn't necessarily take away the pain, but God can use evil and suffering and sin for his glory. But it doesn't necessarily make him, as we like to charge him, as the author of sin. You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where Paul has asked God regarding a specific thorn in his life. We don't know if it's a person. We don't know if it's a situation or a particular illness. We're not sure. Some theologians have suggested it was a person. Others have suggested it was something like epilepsy. I don't know where you possibly get that amount of specificity from uh, these verses. But Paul pled with God three times, and God doesn't do anything. You almost walk away with the sense that God didn't say or give any inclination or explanation. But what Paul declares at the very end is that God's grace is sufficient for him. And the purpose is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Did that take away the thorn? No. Is the thorn still there? Yes. But God's power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. Romans 8.28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, and I'll add, loved by God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even if you're not a believer today, or if we kind of step out of the Bible's parameters for a second, I'm sure you could possibly think of something if you were to rack your brain and experience where you suffered, even in the lightest way. You suffered, and yet you saw that it amounted to good. And maybe you came to that realization in hindsight. Kind of like I, I've been asked, if I had the opportunity to do it again, would I be a parent? And I thought about it, and I thought, would I want to go at 3 o'clock in the morning to the hospital because my son has an ear infection? Do I want to slave over the stove and make a meal that I think is absolutely not only edible but delicious? And they say, this is awful. Can we go out for pizza? Do I want to be in my middle-aged period of my life, have you know, I think I'm a respectable person and have my children call me bra. <laughs> Do I really want to go through that day in and day out? Do I really want my kid who has played one basketball game tell me that I know nothing about the game? Do I really want to suffer like that? Yeah, I guess I would. I, would, I probably would do it over again, regardless of all the challenges. Now, that's a light example. I'm sure there's some that, let's think even theoretically, hypothetically. If you were called to suffer for the benefit of someone you loved, would you not? And would it not be worth it? So just to digress for a moment, 
Is it not within the realm of possibilities and God's purposes that your suffering will bring someone to Christ or closer to the Lord? Maybe your child, maybe your spouse, maybe your neighbor, who knows? Is it not worth it? Consider even Jesus who knew what was coming when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew how challenging it would be to bear that cross, the weight of suffering that he would have to endure to the point where he even says, and, you know, again, if I was Jesus, I would be thinking, gosh, you know, 2,000 years from now, there are going to be people that I'm going to want to believe in the gospel. I probably shouldn't show any sign of weakness, but the Bible tells us that Jesus prays to the Father, if you can pass this cup from me. That's how tough it was to drink it. But he says, let your will be done. And that will was that through one death, the many could live. Philippians 2 tells us that he accepts this suffering, endures this suffering in full obedience to the Father. Hebrews 12.2 takes it a step further and says that he accepts this suffering for joy, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. There can be joy in suffering. That's not, that's not happiness. That's not like winning a basketball game. It's not like seeing the Niners lose. But there is joy in suffering that Christ offers. Again, then this is how I look at it. Either God is lying and he's just trying to play tricks with my mind and my heart to get me through this, or maybe there's something that I just don't understand and fully know. Because if it's true, and I'm just not feeling it, then it's me, it's not him. But if his word is true, then there can be joy, and if Christ has experienced that joy, and he has given me his spirit, then he has given me the opportunity and the spirit to experience that very joy that Jesus experienced himself, that got him through not just the physical pain of the cross, but the weight of sin that he had to bear. I know that it, one difficulty in all seriousness as a parent is you bear the weight of your children. I only have three. Jesus bore the weight of the world. And yet there was joy in that. The joy that is promised is far greater than the suffering that we possibly could endure. Romans 5, 3 through 5 re, um, reads, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Romans eight eighteen reads, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 reads, for this light momentarily affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
And James 1, 2-4 reads, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfast, and let the steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God has purpose in suffering. Now, in when Jesus speaks in verse 3, he says, the very purpose is so that they may know him, believe in him, and worship him. So this whole thing is so that they may be pointed to Jesus. The very first purpose that Jesus wants for us to see in the healing of this blind man is all those Old Testament prophecies pointed to Christ. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he's healing people, he's opening blinded eyes, He's raising people from the dead. These are simply signs to the Jews to let them know that the one you've been reading about for centuries, the one that you've been waiting for for centuries, the one that you have been promised will redeem you and restore you, I'm that person. That's why he did all that. It's not just so he can keep, oh, who's sick next, next. That wasn't his purpose. Were they selective? Sure. Not every blind person had their sight restored. But the Old Testament was there to show clues about the one who would come, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And Jesus is shown to be that person. And particularly in Isaiah, we find that there are promises that this one who will come will open blinded eyes. It's not just mentioned once. It's it's scattered throughout Isaiah. The second purpose is found in verses 35, 38, that we would believe and worship this Jesus. Going back to Job chapters one and two, does Job love God for nothing? The irony of this Job story is this. Satan is out to prove something that is false, but Satan's desire is to prove that Job does love God only because of dot, dot, dot. And so again, that's a great question to ask you. What are the things that if God were to remove, I would really be challenged to love God? And hopefully praying and fasting this coming week will help you come up with that answer. But the irony of Job is this, is that even after Satan is permitted to strike Job, to do whatever he wants, he's just not allowed to take his life. And after Job is suffering so much, and on top of all that suffering, he's got three friends who supposedly are friends and love him and give him really bad biblical advice and basically are telling him, oh, you're suffering because you've sinned and God doesn't like you. But in the end, after suffering all this, before God restores him, you see Job's faith get stronger. So in chapter one, here is a man who loves God for nothing. But by the end of the book, that's even stronger, more fortified and rooted in the truth of who God is. He's actually grown in the process of suffering and hearing bad theology. And that's an invitation to you and me that as we look at other people suffering or even go through it ourselves, if we cling to Christ, if we cling to the Lord, then we grow in our belief and our faith and our worship of Christ.
Now, one thing the Bible does not do is it does not promise that he will remove your suffering. It would have made my life a lot easier. It would have been a really quick sermon. If I could just tell you, pray, be sincere, it'll go away. Let us pray. But it doesn't work that way. I wish, trust me, I, my selfish heart, sorry, Lord, I, I wish I could say that. It doesn't. That does not mean you should not pray. Because healing is found. Alleviation of suffering is found in the Lord. Let's even take that one example of bodily sickness or illness, possibly to death. Who else to turn to? Who would you turn to other than the one who created life? The one who is the redeemer, the restorer of life. The one who has proven to raise the dead to life. Why would you not turn to God? He can. He is able. He just may not. But that doesn't mean all is lost. That doesn't mean everything that you have believed up until this point is untrue. It just means for that particular moment, God will sustain you in a different way. This God who has raised the dead from the who has raised the dead to life, he can, and we are called, encouraged to pray to him. Second Corinthians 12, again, Paul turns to the Lord. He turns three times. In fact, I would venture, and this is just a guess, I would venture to guess that even beyond 2 Corinthians 12, after he had come to the realization that, okay, God is not going to remove this thorn, that he continued to pray for God's grace. The sufficiency of God's grace to endure the pain that he was experiencing. So he sought the Lord continuously. Now, don't be mistaken, God hates sin. He hates evil, he hates suffering, he hates sin. Again, I get it, the, the knee-jerk response to that is, then why doesn't he just get rid of it? Well, I'll say that for another sermon, or I'll give it to Pastor Sam to deal with it. Um, but there's no doubt in this passage and so many others that he hates sin. There's that one story of, in John 11 with Lazarus, his close friend in Bethany, brother to Mary and Martha, and, he, and Lazarus passes away. Interestingly, Jesus delays his going to Lazarus, and the sisters are convinced that if he had gone more quickly, more promptly, that Lazarus would still be alive. And there's that famous verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And we typically understand that weeping as Jesus being so filled with grief. But actually, two commentators noted that, and not only two commentators, but two commentators in particular noted that not only was he filled with so much grief that he was compelled to weep, but he was filled with anger. B.B. Warfield, um, an old Princeton Seminary theologian, said he was filled and moved with indignation. Sinclair Ferguson writes that not only did he experience overwhelming grief, but he experienced irrepressible anger. And so he wept. God cries as angry with the way you and I suffer because of sin. And how Satan uses that as his toy 
Yes, God permits it. Again, I, I, like, how are you saying these two? Uh, they seem to push against one another. But he is angry at sin. You may be familiar with the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny Erickson Tata, uh, at the age of 17, was swimming in the Chesapeake Bay. And she did not realize that one particular portion of the bay was shallow. She dove right in and became paralyzed, neck down. She wrote, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. He can. And isn't it a privilege that he would use us in all of our brokenness to shine his glory? <clears throat> For the past two weeks, uh, Pastor Sam has been talking about trusting in the Lord. I've only been here for five months. I get that I'm a pastor of this church, but I would not be surprised if you don't trust me. You just don't know me well enough. It's just a title at this point. And I look at my children and people ask, which would you live with if you had to live with one? Oh, I don't think there are three choices out of three children. I think there's really one choice. I won't disclose that in case they listen to this message. But there's one child who we just recently found out that all these Amazon deliveries we've sent to, he's kept the boxes in his dorm room. I don't know if I would trust that child to take care of me in my elderly years. Now, another child, I would. I would trust that person. Who is the Lord that we would trust? Who is the Lord that in the midst of all my suffering, in my weakness, where I think there's no hope, how can I not trust in him? This God who created everything that is good, so good that even after the fall and the entrance of sin, we still get to enjoy it. Who is this God that is so patient with sinners, who has shown time and time again to be long-suffering with us? Who is this Lord that doesn't look at us and say, well, in your hopeless estate, I'm just gonna leave you there, enjoy your earthly life, because that's the most I'll give you, and then that's it. But he offers us, though we are unworthy and incapable, he offers us hope. And this Lord who says, I gave my son who died for you, and look at the way you're living in all of your disobedience, your doubts, your wanderings. Who is this one that still, even today, calls me a child of God? I trust in that, Lord. So when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not on your own understanding, my understanding is he's not worthy of my trust because he's just like me or just like anyone else in this world, but he is different. And scripture reminds me that this is a, our heavenly father, our heavenly father who has always been good, our heavenly father who now adopts us in Christ and calls us his children forever. This heavenly father who has told me and you offers to you, reminds you that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your suffering is not without purpose. It is to the glory of God. And when we understand that, we get a greater infusion, shall we say, of his grace, experience of his grace to endure it. Your suffering is not without God's power. 
his presence and grace. And I want to close just by reading three passages to encourage you as God walks with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Isaiah 43, 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. The last one is in Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Our hope is not in why this has happened. Our hope is in the one who holds us. And I realize this is especially tough for a lot of people today. But my encouragement is to look to the Father who holds you in his hands and whose grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, we are grateful for your love, for your compassion, your faithfulness. You are good. And sometimes it is hard to reconcile this truth with our sufferings, with the sufferings of others, with the existence of sin, with a world full of pain and evil. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak truth to open our eyes to see Christ or for those who are children of God today to see Christ more clearly. Uh, For those who are weak, today show your perfect power. We pray that you would be particularly merciful to them. But not to look to temporary means, though these are certainly at your disposal, but to look to the eternal God. And may their comfort be in the good news that tell them that Christ has defeated death and that for them today, Death has no sting, and the grave has no victory. That the victory is yours, and now because 
of Christ. It is ours. And we bless you. We praise you. For it's in Christ's name we pray.